You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 82. We're really racking them up now. I'm David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. And along with me on this uh, today's voyage is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm pretty good. It smells like cow manure all over campus. I'm not sure what that is. Oh, well, you know. Where I'm at, if the wind is right, you can smell the oil refinery at the end of town. So, and probably sure. a, a substantial amount of cow manure as well. No, no, we're 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 much more about you know soybeans and millet and such where I'm at than than cows. But you know, yeah, chicken farms here. Ooh. Oh yeah, <laughs> Nathan wins. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one yes, smelling yes, chicken. Farms is Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English. Uh, Dr. Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I forgot about the chicken houses. Oh, yeah. If that breeze gets blown the wrong way, you smell them. Boy, do you smell them. Mm. That may be the worst smell ever. I, I don't know. Hog farms are pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My uh, grandparents lived up upwind from a hog farm. Though it probably is good for us that we can walk out of our buildings and, you know, take a big, uh, take a big whiff of air and inhale the smells of some variation of blue collar America. <laughs> Wait, why is that good? Um, I don't know. Makes us more like Whitman. I don't know. <laughs> We've been lived in the city, David. <laughs> well, I know, I know, but still. Hail Manahatta. He, he encompasses multitudes, dude. Well, that's also true. Well, with the greetings done, and before we get to our topic, uh, we have a well, an unusual amount of uh, flurry on the blog. Uh, you want to address that, Nathan? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, we have a flurry on the blog again, not because of any brilliance on my part, but because I've poked a hornet's nest. <laughs> uh, the, this time, uh, the hornet is not named McLaren, uh, but Ralston, and uh, a couple friends of mine from seminary, Wes Arblaster and Micah Weedman. Uh, got together and we decided as a trio to write a response to a recent Huffington Post uh, blog entry by Chris Ralston, who is a professor of Old Testament at our seminary. Um, listeners, you can go to that post. It was posted, uh, oh, what day was that? It was Monday the 17th of September. 
and what's been so fascinating about it is that folks I haven't heard from in years, along with folks that I've only read about in my traditions periodicals, uh, are responding to this thing. And it seems that uh, everyone was a little bit miffed that he was taking it upon himself to become the de facto viral face of Emmanuel Christian Seminary and a fair bit of gratitude for presenting an alternative face as well as a fair bit of venom from uh, the disciples of Ralston uh, for going after their guy. So fun stuff on the blog. I got a good seminary fight is something that, you, that I feel like I ought to have every few years. So here's my seminary fight for 2012. Awesome. Well, I will say that I'm particularly impressed and encouraged by the fact that apparently St. Paul appreciates what you said. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That would be St. Paul, our blaster. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I guess that's good too. Although it is pretty great that St. Paul offered to buy me a beer. <laughs> it sounds more like St. Luther. <laughs> For your stomach, Nathan. Uh, yeah, there you go, there you go. Or thine oft infirmities. <laughs> It'll cure what ails you. You're not allowed to drink, though, are you? No, I'm not. Not as faculty at Emmanuel College. So, listeners, you can't uh, offer Nathan a beer or David a beer, but I am wide open for it. <laughs> <laughs> they changed our policy in July. As one of the other faculty members here put it, I've had a good summer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, listeners, if you were adding items to your list of how we're different from homebrewed Christianity, the fact that two of us are contractually forbidden from drinking beer is one of the items you can add. <laughs> yeah. Probably, well, the, mo probably the most significant difference, don't you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, other than that, you know, pretty much mirror image. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even know why we do this show, it's just a replication. Yeah, I mean, pretty much shot for shot. <laughs> uh, I hate plagiarism. <laughs> we'll, uh, if we if we don't have any more, more shop talk or any more letters from listeners or anything like that, I reckon we'd better dive in, right? Let's rock and roll. Well, um, when I was prepping for this episode, I, I did what I often do when I don't have a topic that immediately springs to mind which is see if the day on which we record or the day on which the episode is going to post uh, happens to be any kind of significant anniversary. Turns out I had hits on both. Hey. And yeah, uh, today, uh, the day that we're recording, which is uh, the 20th of September, uh, is the anniversary of Magellan setting out to sail around the world. And when this show airs uh, next Tuesday... Uh, the 24th, 5th, don't remember. Let's say 25th. Yeah, it's five, yeah. five yeah. days from now. Today's a Thursday. Yeah, you know, I'm bad at, like, calendar math. Uh, <laughs> on the 25th, that's the anniversary of uh, Balboa seeing the Pacific for the first time. So Now, was Adrian uh, with him, David, or...? <laughs> Uh, no, which is why the first words uttered by a European at the side of the Pacific were, Yo, Adrian. <laughs> he, 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 he was hoping that she would be able to hear him across the waves. That isn't true. Um, 
anyway, I saw those two anniversaries and thought, hey, that's a sign. And so uh, I chose the ocean as our topic. Very good. Yeah. Um, it seems, you know, big enough for us to do our thing and 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 yet still be huge and inexhaustible and leave exploration there for our listeners if they want to venture out. Um, but I guess first we ought to etymologize and define. Um, Michael, I mean, where do our words for ocean come from, like ocean or marine? Well, marine is one of the most boring etymologies you're ever going to find. It basically means ocean or sea in every language. Uh, that, that that it's found in ocean is a little different it comes from okeanos which is a greek word that we will talk about in a few minutes uh but mostly neither one of those words is terribly interesting they they have always meant ocean they've mm-hmm. always meant that large salty body of water that covers most <laughs> of the earth all right all right well i wanted to throw marine in there because mm, well i imagine most folk, most folks, the first thing that they think of when they hear marine is going to be a particular kind of soldier. But, but yeah, that means. Oh, see, I thought yeah. they're a branch of the navy. Well, they're still soldiers. <laughs> no, they're sailors. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I, I, you, you go tell a marine that. Oh, all right, all right. <laughs> Any marines can contact Nathan Gilmore, courtesy of Emanuel College. Well, they're also not soldiers. <laughs> soldiers are army boys. <laughs> They're jarheads, right? They are. They are simply marines. <laughs> anyway, okay, well, this this is the day on which we picked a fight with marines. Anyway, but that's what that's what their name means. It means having to do with the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah. Um, what about sea? That's a well. That's that's not a classical word. That's Germanic. No, yeah, it's it's north northern European and about like the word uh, marine. Uh, it, it's basically got cognates in Old Norse, in Gothic, in Old English, uh, and it basically means sea. I mean, I was kind of hoping when I looked it up, you know, that it would be something that, you know, when Hannibal was stationing his troops in Spain to get ready to march into the Alps, he asked one of the locals what that large body of water is, and he said sea. Oh, good. But no, <laughs> Nathan, I read that that word is cognate with wild and fierce in uh, Proto-Germanic. Oh no! See, I didn't run into that. What did you find out when you're digging in, digging in on that? Uh, just what I said—that it was cognate oh, okay. with <laughs> Oh, I didn't run into that. Now the Hebrew is a little bit more interesting. You've actually got a pair of words, uh, fairly interchangeable in the Psalms. Uh, one of them is Yom, which is a loan word from Canaanite, which I'll talk about here in a little while. The other one is uh, Shemayim, which is interesting because it is one of those words like Elohim. Uh, which is always grammatically plural. Um, did I get that wrong? Yes, I did. Shemayim is the heavens. Mayim is the waters. But All the, right, the mistake so. itself is instructive, right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> you know, it's one of those interesting things in Hebrew, and it always poses translation challenges, uh, that whenever you talk about the waters or the skies or the gods, uh, there are no singular forms of any of those words. So again, you know, you get strange sentences in Hebrew, like when the prophet Isaiah says, the gods is one. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it's one of those things where you've got to make a choice as a translator. So, you know, uh, usually people pretty reasonably, I think, say God is one. And then on the other hand, there are, on the other hand, there are times when a singular heaven 
uh, just works better poetically and in terms of translation than the plural heavens. Although in your first, you know, opening verses of Genesis, that's why uh, you have the heavens plural and the earth singular, and you got the separation of the waters plural from the land singular. Mm-hmm. So again, it, it it's one of those funky Hebrew grammar things. We talked about stative verbs several episodes back. It's one of those things that's so alien to even our grammar that it's difficult to talk about without getting the concept wrong. Neat. Well, I, I wanted to bring up something else about C, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, Solomon's bronze C. If you, yes, if you, yes. If you had if you had a King James. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just that, uh, uh, if, if you, if you look into old English, sea can, and most often does mean ocean sea, but it can also refer to any flat expanse of water, um, almost regardless of size. Mm-hmm. So, right, and, the, right. and, and, and that ambiguity does seem to have stuck around for a while. So that in the King James, they do talk about. Um, what appears to be a, a really big basin of water as a sea. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I, I didn't actually look up that passage, David. My guess would be that they use that Canaanite loan word, yom. You think that? I, okay. I, I would guess, but again, uh, listeners, I mean, if you have studied your Hebrew and you want to correct me on that, I'll probably go look it up after we record and slap myself in the head. <laughs> See, I assumed what I was seeing was an archaic... Uh, an archaic use of, of, of the English word sea, but that in... Oh, no, that's also a possibility. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to look okay. that up because I really didn't think of that when I was researching for this episode, so... Interesting. Cool. Well, um, just based on, uh, well, based on, on what you said, Nathan, uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that the ocean or the sea fit into ancient cosmologies, uh differently depending on cultures (laughs) so i'm going to let you talk for a bit about the ocean and ancient near eastern cosmologies and i know that's that's an awful lot of them so (laughs) cite the one you find most interesting all right i'll I'll hit a couple high points one of them is the uh, babylonian uh, origins epic enuma elish uh, which features tiamat the sea dragon Uh, she is menacing uh, not only the earth but also the gods and so the gods agree to make marduk the storm god, their chief god, uh, if he will fight and defeat Tiamat. And when he does, he uh, splits the body of Tiamat and the parts of Tiamat become the seas of the earth because she is the saltwater dragon. Uh, And so for Babylonian mythology, uh, the sea is always a place of chaos. It's always a place of danger. That's a common thread that you see over in the... Canaanite mythologies with Yom that I just talked about. It's always a place of chaos. It's always a place of danger. And it makes sense given that the sailing vessels of the time uh, really couldn't handle open sea voyages. If you went out into the water uh, past a certain distance from the shore, you were basically putting your life into the hands of the chaos gods. Uh, So again, you know, those Mediterranean basin cultures tended to view the sea as something very, very dangerous. It's something very different, I mean, and, I, and I'm not going to go into a whole lot of depth on this, David, but it's very different from what you see, for instance, in uh, the mythologies of Pacific Islanders, uh, where the mm. sea tends to be a more benevolent force, uh, but you do have, for instance, shark gods that are more malevolent. 
but at any rate, uh, I want to draw that into contrast real fast before I, I pass it back to you with uh, what you see in Genesis 1. Uh, what you see there is not a fierce combat between gods in which Adonai, the god of the Hebrews, comes out on top of a saltwater dragon or some sort of primordial chaos, uh, but rather Adonai simply speaks and the waters are separated. I mean, it's not even an active verb, it's a passive. Uh, so it's it's one of those things where if you read Genesis in relationship with what's going on in Babylonian and Canaanite mythologies of the time, it really is a stark polemic against them to say that uh, our God, first of all, is not one that even has to do battle with the great chaotic force of the universe. Our God simply commands it, and it does. Uh, and second of all, the fact that the sea in Genesis is more or less inanimate. Uh, you know, it's not a rival force, uh, but it is simply part of the world that Adonai commands with a spoken word. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a fascinating contrast, really, when you compare the Enuma Elish or the uh, Epic of Baal on one hand with the text of Genesis on the other hand. Yeah. Well, and in Genesis, there are sea monsters in that ocean, but God put them there. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Well, what about Greeks and Romans, Michael? I, I, I usually assign you the, the Batogad people. Um, how does the ocean fit into their world? Well, the Greeks and Romans spoke, as I said, of this enormous river called Okeanos, um, which is, of course, where we get the word ocean. Uh, this river encircled the earth completely, and all of the fresh water on earth came eventually from Okeanos through these subterranean aquifers. Hmm. And actually, even the rain came from Okeanos because the clouds went below the horizon picked up the water, and then came back and dropped it. So it really is the source <laughs> of all the water on the planet. Now, because people at the time believed that the Earth was flat, most people anyway, Okeanos mm -hmm. formed the boundary of the edge of the world, and so all the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars, they all sank into it, and then they rose from it on the other side. And the river was associated not just with water and wildness, but with time itself, because like all rivers, it was forever rolling on. And, you know, Hades is on the other side of this river in some cosmologies. And, I mean, it is, it, it's hard to overestimate the importance of Okeanos. Mm -hmm. uh, that name also applies to the, the Titan who oversaw the river. So the river itself is in some sense divine, or at least verbally or linguistically indistinguishable from divinity. You can read all about the world river in the Iliad. It appears on Achilles' shield, along with everything else in the world. <laughs> and then in the Odyssey, Odysseus prays to the to Okeanos, the god of the world river. Um, so he, he shows up there, too. And I believe it's also in Hesiod, but... Uh, it's been a long time since I read Hesiod, and I can't remember exactly where. So, well, yeah, yeah, go ahead. He does have to account for you know the whole world and his cosmogony or his right. theogony. Yeah, yeah. So. And, I, and I remember Oceanus <laughs> being one of the gods that's listed among the catalog of Titans. So, well, that, that's that's what it is. They had this, uh, you know, strange and poetic vision of the world being encircled by this vast. Maybe even Endless River. Mm -hmm. Kind of pretty. Yeah. As, <laughs> now, as far no. as ancient cosmologies go, it's one of the uh, more attractive ones, I think. Yeah. 
Now, now, when did they start talking about the world being round and the other side of the world as the Antipodes? Do we have a date for that? Oh, I, I sure don't. Um, okay. I don't have a century for it. I know that it is. I mean, sometime there in that that period of intense intellectual activity, sort of between Thales and um, Lucretius. I mean, to to not to put too tight a rein <laughs> that, on it. That that four hundred year period. Yeah, well, well, but I mean, you know, when we're talking about ancient cosmologies, that's actually fairly precise, Michael. I uh, I thought this happened in fourteen ninety two. Oh, heavens. Well, there's a chapter in City of God in which Augustine uh, takes on the question of whether or not the other side of the world is inhabited. Right, right. And and in order – and for him to ask that question, he's he's got to imagine a world with another side. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, he concludes that there isn't because, one, you know, surely we would have heard of it. And two, simply because there is another side of the world, that doesn't necessarily follow that it will be peopled. Um, and he, he, he imagines the, the Antipodes, the other side of the world, as just a lot more water with not a whole lot going on. Mm-hmm. You know. And but pur- I, I, pur- purgatory shows up over there much later. Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't really sure at what point, um, at what point that, that notion supplanted the uh, the 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 flatter world surrounded by uh, the the ocean river, right? I've I've never gotten the impression, and I, I'm not a Dante scholar by any means, but I've never gotten the impression that anyone knows what source Dante drew that from. I mean, it might just be part of the architecture of his universe. Okay, but again, I mean, listeners, if you are Dante scholars, by all means, correct us on that. Well, and I think it'd be useful too to kind of set these cosmologies in contrast with, uh, well, I mean, the way we talk about the ocean today. I mean, mm-hmm. if if we had an if if we happen to know an oceanographer and invite him to be a guest on our show, um, you know, how might that that uh, that's modern scientists talk about the ocean's role in the planet differently than say an Aristotle or an ancient Phoenician or something? Well, uh, this really brings us back to what we talked about many, many episodes ago, namely the Enlightenment. And sort of the shift in the imaginary with the Enlightenment is a shift from the inhabited world versus the mysterious world to a single universe. Uh, So the modern oceanographer's view of things is that the same basic physical laws that govern uh, downtown Athens, Georgia, are the same basic physical laws that govern the bottom of the Mar- Mariana Trench. Uh, and, you know, the the reason that we don't inhabit both in the same way is because we are organisms that are more adapted to certain uh, climates and certain environmental conditions than others. Uh, but everything is basically intelligible as one singular integrated system. Now, what's interesting is, and and Michael, I'm not going to scoop too much of Moby Dick because I have a hunch we're going to talk about Moby Dick later. Uh, But what's interesting is that at the same time you get an aesthetic shift uh, right about the time of Immanuel Kant, who, of course, is in the height of the Enlightenment, uh, to say that aesthetics has to do not necessarily with uh, order and reason, uh, but with the sublime, with those moments that are oceanic, you know, to 
use a little bit of an episode pun, uh, those moments where reality is much, much larger than we as human consciousness consciousness can apprehend. Right. Uh, so it's interesting that, you know, the modern ocean sort of sees a, a, a chiasmus happening. On one hand, our aesthetics has shifted from a sort of universal divine beauty to the human-sized, picturesque versus the monstrous sublime. On the other hand, our view of cosmology has shifted from the human world and the mysterious world to a universal law-governed universe. So, I mean, it's fascinating, I mean, to think about uh, the ocean as just one instance of this shift. Of course, it applies to many other realms of life, but it's especially notable when we when it comes to how we talk about the ocean. Well, that's helpful, Nathan. Um, I think though we uh, we can we can kind of trace maybe some of the in between points uh, when we get to our next question. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of those episodes that you call a curator episode, Nathan. <laughs> so I, I guess we should curate some things. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll start with you, Michael. Um, but literary works. Um, what would you recommend that really kind of captures the ocean and its significance in uh, one or two of your favorite periods? I'm just going to talk about one period, and it's it's coincidentally enough the period Nathan was just addressing, the, the period immediately following the Enlightenment where the ocean becomes the symbol for all that is wild and ungovernable in, in the human world. Um, and of course I am going to talk about Moby Dick, so I'll just go ahead and do that. This is from the first chapter of Moby Dick, uh, right after he says, call me Ishmael. Mm-hmm. He says, some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It's a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hippos get hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. And... <laughs> You, you you see here that the ocean is connected with this human urge toward, it's hard to say what exactly, uh, Freud might identify this as the Thanatos, the death instinct. He's, he's hanging out at coffin warehouses and walking in funeral processions, and so he wants to go to the sea. And so the question is, is the sea a cure for that? Or is the sea just a manifestation of that same death drive? It's it's the these darker... Uh, parts of the human soul that are not able to be understood and of course the sea in in moby dick stands in for as many things as anybody could possibly want it to stand in for it's not Mm -hmm. it's also this uh this symbol of tremendous life and vitality and education you know he says that a whale ship was my yale and my harvard and uh but eventually it kills everybody in the novel (laughs) except for ishmael spoiler alert and, and so, uh, I mean, it's a 160-year-old novel, so I don't feel too bad about spoiling it. Oh. But, uh, yeah, so the, the the ocean here is this thing to which we are drawn, but th- that we can't in any sense control. This thing that we go to escape the doldrums and, and you know, our suicidal impulses, but which may yet prove even more boring and even more deadly. 
Mm-hmm. The other one, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. You, go, you go ahead. I was just going to say that, I mean, you know, I, that's why I didn't immediately address the novel. I figured you would touch on some of these things. I mean, it is at the same time far greater and, like you said, un- uncontrollable in human terms. And yet so much of that novel is dedicated to anatomical studies of whales. It's dedicated to meteorological digressions. It's dedicated to very scientific discourse. So, I mean, I, I think that is the perfect novel to talk about the modern reversal of aesthetics and cosmology. Right. But the, the more scientific he gets, the further away he gets from understanding what the ocean and these um, incredible creatures that inhabit it, what they, what they really are. Mm-hmm. Which is why he has to turn to poetry and religion and all sorts of other stuff. None of which gets him any closer. Right. And in the end, the sea wins. Ends up hanging on to a coffin, just just as the novel begins at a coffin warehouse. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the other one I wanted to talk about has very similar attitude toward the ocean. It is Edgar Allan Poe's little-read, little-loved novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. It is not a terribly good book, but it is <laughs> awesome. It is interesting as as a manifestation of what we're talking about. Mr. Pym is drawn to the sea, even though the sea continually almost kills him. He keeps going back on it for reasons he can't even express. Uh, he gets into just about every mishap you can get into involving the ocean with... Uh, pirates, cannibalism, uh, uh, cannibals, or excuse me, th- there's cannibalism and cannibals. It's it's two separate incidents. He, oh, okay. <laughs> he, he sails to Antarctica, which is covered not with ice, but with, uh, it, it's very warm down there, which was a common idea in the 1830s. Uh, but, but again, the sea is this thing that just kind of spits you out. You're, it, it, you're drawn to it but it cares nothing for you. That's why I think it's so interesting that sea is cognate with wild and fierce, because, I mean, that is how mm-hmm. it's consistently painted. And if anybody's ever been out on the sea, it's hard to argue with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Nathan? Well, uh, Michael already touched on the Odyssey, but I think that a little bit more exploration is is in order. One of the things that really marks Homer's uh, great sea voyage for Odysseus is that Odysseus is always at odds with the sea itself and at odds with Poseidon, the god of the sea. Uh, So, I mean, Poseidon, as opposed to Zeus, who sometimes can get wrathful, uh, but is by and large the governor of the other gods, keeps the other gods in line, uh, Poseidon is all revenge. Uh, That's really what you come away with in Homer, that uh, this is a god that if you get on the wrong side of him, he will destroy you. Uh, and again, I mean, that, that image of the sea as the great destroyer persists there. Uh, like I said uh, before as well, it's a place of chaos. Uh, you have, of course, Scylla and Charybdis, that famous scene uh, where they have to navigate between the whirlpool that destroys ships and the monster on the shore that consumes sailors. Uh, again, allegorize that as you must. Uh, you've got the idea throughout the thing that, you know, the sea is a dark place. The The famous epithet that recurs in Homer is the wine dark sea. Uh, this is not a place of blue water, uh, but this is a place of darkness. It's a place of mystery. 
And when you traverse it, uh, again, I mean, I'm allegorizing the heck out of this, I realize. Uh, but that's kind of how you're supposed to read Greek literature, I think. Uh, when you traverse it, I mean, you are very literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, you know, this is the place of destruction. Now, what's interesting is when you get on into Virgil several centuries later, uh, there's much less of a sense that it is a place of uh, cyclopes and monstrous whirlpools and things like that. There's a lot more focus on the various tribes of human beings and the hostility and the various dangers that inhere in humanity uh, that await a sailor on each shore. There's some mention of the gods, certainly. Uh, there's some mention of the monstrous, but by and large, it is the hostility of kings and kingdoms that you have to worry about when you journey the sea in the Aeneid. Now, if I can jump several centuries again, uh, what's fascinating about what David brought up earlier is that when Dante lays out his architecture of all of reality, uh, he places purgatory, the place that the saved go to be re-educated, basically, to be fully educated, I should say, to learn to desire God. Uh, he places that at the Antipodes, uh, at the opposite point of Jerusalem on the other side of the earth. And we find out that it is a continuous ocean that connects the land that humanity inhabits and the mountain that the saved travel to, because Odysseus, of all people, uh, in the Inferno, tells Dante and Virgil that uh, he, when he got old, got bored, sailed out past the point of Gibraltar, and took his men out on a sea voyage around a spherical earth, all right? Mm. Uh, and when they had spotted the spire of Mount Purgatory in the distance, a mighty storm rose up and their ship was destroyed. Uh, so again, I mean, you know, if if you're supposed to allegorize Homer, I think you're really supposed to allegorize Dante. <laughs> uh, again, I mean, the ocean becomes the place of ambition. Uh, it is the place that human beings, because we do not recognize our own limitations and our own place in the universe, we venture out upon it, despite the, play, despite the fact that it is not our home. Uh, and when we start to reach out for things that are only supposed to be available to us through revelation, uh, that is when that ambition destroys us. Uh, so the ocean is a tragic place in Dante, uh, in a way that there's always the threat of that in Homer, uh, although, spoiler alert, I think I can give a spoiler for a 3,000-year-old story. Uh, <laughs> uh, Odysseus actually makes it across the sea. He makes it back to Ithaca. So that's what marks him as a hero, is that he takes on Poseidon and wins. Awesome. Well, I'm going to start with maybe some unpredictable choices for me. Um, I've, I've talked a lot about Beowulf in the past, and even though the ocean is in Beowulf, I'm not going to talk about it now. Um, instead, I'm going to turn to one of my favorite books. Uh, as, as a kid, uh, Captain's Courageous by Kipling. Um, this was... Uh, this was written in the the very late 19th century, uh, and so this this is you know, probably I guess the most modern of the books that we've cited so far. Um, it's the story of a little rich kid, uh, the son of one of those 
19th century railroad barons who gets knocked off of a ship in a storm, a steamship, and gets picked up by uh, North Atlantic fishermen. Uh, he's he's rescued by them, but he can't persuade them that uh, he can't persuade them that he's rich. Um, as soon as he ends up on board this fishing boat, he tells them, I'm super rich, and if you can just turn around now and head back to port, my dad will basically reward you with the cost of your fleet like three times over. And they, they don't believe him uh, because for them, heading out into the North Atlantic for the, the period of time that they're out there is uh, – that is their, their livelihood. That is their income for the year. They, they've just started – uh, their season, as it were, and if they head back now, they they you know they they risk losing it all. So in this particular story, uh, the sea is dangerous, as in uh, as in a lot of the other ones that we've done. It's still mysterious, um, but it's also the place in which you know hard human work happens. And this uh, this child of privilege learns uh, learns how to do a good day's work. Basically, they make him earn his keep. Uh, they don't take his stories of money as as payment. He has he has to work. So he learns how to gut a fish and throw a net and all the all the other kinds of uh, uh, skills that one picks up on a fishing boat. I loved that as a kid. Um, I think too it was uh, Kipling trying to get back to a get back to an ocean in in story that was more like uh, the way the ocean is in uh, well in Moby Dick or in uh, you know in in older tales because he begins with uh, he begins with people on a, on a steamship. Um, a steamship that runs on a schedule, a steamship that's so huge that the ocean, the ocean's movement is largely minimized, mm-hmm. and uh, our protagonist is, you know, his dad runs railroads. He's used to the idea of tameable expanses traversed on a re- in a regularly scheduled and efficient manner. Um, but he falls from a steamship into a little sailing ship, and it's it's like he falls into another century, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, another century with its own superstitions about uh, how to manage the unmanageable sea, its own uh, its own culture, its own kinds of caution. Um, they fish dead bodies out of uh, out of the out of the sea, and in the end. Uh, Towards the end of the book, uh, for for me, you know, as a child, one of the most affecting scenes is when all the fishermen uh, get get back to port at the end of the book and have one big joint memorial service for all of the fishermen who had died in that season. And it basically involves reading a list of names, um, you know, the people who the sea had claimed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I loved that book as a kid. Um, and I guess The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is one that needs a mention too. Um, and thus my my urgency in defining the word marine earlier, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, let's see, Coleridge, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, probably familiar to most people from a, uh, uh, a an English comp or an, an English lit survey. Um, I, I I like it because it's got it's got all of these different uh, super uh, sort of superstition or legendary kinds of images connected with the sea. You've got the ghost ships, you've got sea monsters, you've got uh, you know all of the all of the things associated with the albatross and whether or not you kill it. And you know again, it's 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 another one of those images of of uh, humans at the mercy at the mercy of the sea. And uh, the Mariner's Tale is almost even more. Um, well, I mean, it's 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 out it's outright supernatural. It's you don't have to allegorize it in order to make it um, a spiritual thing uh, about the human soul. It 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 already is that. And you know, so yeah, those those are those are my contributions. All right. Well, I know last week when we talked about realism. Um, I think we all really enjoyed bringing other kinds of art into the conversation, our, our little venture into art history. Um, I know I enjoyed it and uh, also bringing uh, just sort of tipping our hat towards music. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I think I'd like to do it again. So um, I'll start with you, Nathan. Um, can you point us to some good oceanic bits of visual art? Yeah, my my personal favorite, and I I fear to go here just because it is such a stereotypical college dorm sort of painting, uh, but it is the 19th century uh, woodblock, uh, and actually it's one of a series of 36 uh, woodblock prints, but the most famous one is uh, Under the Wave off of Kanagawa. It's from the series uh, 36 Views of Mount Fuji, and the artist is the Japanese... Hokusai. And what's great about this painting is that Mount Fuji, which is really beyond argument the singular geographic feature of Japan, uh, appears sort of off in the central, lower central part of the painting. And from this view from the ocean, Mount Fuji is dwarfed by this gigantic wave that is rising up and about to crush some fishing boats. Until you uh, until you said that, Nathan, I did not realize that was even supposed to be Mount Fuji. I'm looking at it now, and I thought it was a white cap. Oh no 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 no! It's yeah, it's a uh, you know, it's from that series. Like I said, 36 views of Mount Fuji, and you know, again, what's what's fascinating about this painting is uh, Hokusai's wonderful use of perspective to take what is normally the grandest thing in the imagination of Japanese art uh, and to relativize it, uh, to put it in perspective so that it actually becomes one of the smallest and, as Michael just demonstrated, least recognizable features of this painting. So, again, if, if you've traveled college circles at all, you've seen this on somebody's dorm wall, uh, I think it's still a great painting, so... Uh, Hokusai is mine. Michael, what have you got for us? You, know, you talked about Homer earlier. I'm going to talk about a different Homer. I'm going to look at two paintings from the American artist from the late 19th century, Winslow Homer. Uh, the first is called Breezing Up a Fair Wind, which features a very small sailboat with four people in it. It is uh, in the midst of the ocean on this kind of choppy wave. Everybody looks happy. Everybody looks calm. They're looking off at the horizon. It's a very pretty, very optimistic painting. 
You can contrast that with his later painting, The Gulf Stream, which features a, another very small sailboat, except there's no sail, and there's no rudder, and there's just one person sitting in it, and the boat looks like it's in serious danger of capsizing. So you see, mm. in, you see in those two paintings um, the two views of the ocean as, as kind of something pleasant to go out on in the afternoon and enjoy oneself and something that has, you know, poses a real existential threat to, uh, to anybody who dares to set sail on it. Mm. And I don't have any particular, uh, I don't have any particular art to point to this time. Um, I just wanted to make sort of a general observation about the uh, the impact of things like Magellan's voyage, the impact of things like Columbus's voyage on cartography. Mm, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's uh, it, if uh, Nathan and Michael, uh, if you guys have talked about fairly, uh, I guess, realistic depictions of the ocean. Um, you know, cartography is, is sort of by definition, uh, unreal. There is, there is no way that you can chop up our globe and flatten it out into a rectangle. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, paint it as it is. Um, it's always an exercise in imagination when you make a map. Um, if you look at, uh, older maps, medieval maps, uh, early modern maps before, uh, before the discovery of the new world, um, you can still, uh, you can still silly occupy the space of an ancient Greek. You can still see a world that is circumscribed by the river ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and while much is made of this, uh, I, I've, I, I've never actually seen a map that has the inscription here be dragons on it. <laughs> um, but in, uh, in, in maps of the period, you will see, uh, I think mainly decorative, but you will see little sea serpents popping up here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, also that, uh, medieval and early modern maps are much more concerned with the land than with the sea. The, 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 the oceans are where the land stops. They're the border. Right. Um, and and so all most of the attention is on uh, is on the, uh, the 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 land side of the map, and that changes uh, aesthetically. It's a big change um, when the new world is discovered. Uh, you, you now have a map that is uh, uh, all to a large extent bordered by land, mm-hmm. with ocean as this kind of interstitial. Uh, you know, space that, you know, it's, it's, it's the way that you get from the one land to the other land. And I, I just, just aesthetically as a way of imagining the world, um, it, it's, it's interesting to me the way the oceans, uh, the oceans shrink with the discovery of the new world in a way. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, uh, they don't get any smaller, but they shrink. It's <laughs> odd that. And yet, anyway. I mean, they're they're still largely the last undiscovered territory on the planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still well, have I, we still have only the vaguest of notions what goes on deep in them. Right. I mean, Lord knows there might still be dragons down there. 
<laughs> Dragons in the deep. At the at the very uh, least, there's enormous squids. Yes. Right, right. And then also, I mean, there are, and I remember when I first learned about this, I mean, it just blew my mind that there are ecosystems that do not depend on photosynthesis. Right. Yep. Alien worlds under the ocean. I mean, it's, well, I think it's, it's, it's terrifying if you think about it. Some of the nasty, terrifying <laughs> uh, things that live down there. Well, uh, fortunately, we don't get to visit them. <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't have to anyway. Yeah, well, and I, it it makes sense that w- that it would go largely unregarded because you know with the discovery of the new world, um, the ocean was the ocean became something to get across. Mm-hmm. You know, it became the thing that was keeping you from the more interesting thing on the other side, and so, um, I, I especially the the nineteenth and early twentieth century assumption that you, you kind of see reflected in, in the popular literature of the time that, well, we tamed this planet, <laughs> right, <laughs> figured out right. everything here, um, largely has to do with the fact that they had mapped the surface um, to a large degree. And and conquering the world, dominating the world, and understanding the world was largely, at, at, at least in the popular mind, um, understood carto- uh, cartographically, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a map of it, therefore it's ours. But, uh, yeah, the the first, you know, the first su- attempts to get underwater with a submarine and do a little exploring, I think, kind of give the lie to that. <laughs> Will, um, what about music? Do you know, you know any good uh, ocean music, Michael? Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, Frederick Chopin's Etude Number 24, which is... Um, nicknamed Ocean, and uh, I'll play it here. to see why it's called the ocean. Uh, it moves up and down in these great, majestic waves. Uh, it's one of the things Chopin's actually really good at is invoking waves in his music, and this is obviously the one that does it the best. I don't have too much to say about it other than uh, that is an aptly titled piece. Mm. What about you, Nathan? Uh, I'm going to go modern, uh, postmodern even. And point to John Williams' soundtrack to the movie Jaws, and awesome. much has been made of the fact that he all but plagiarized the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky for that opening theme. What I would note is that by doing so, uh, he is echoing Stravinsky and reaching back to a mythological past. You know, this, uh, like Moby Dick, which again is a very, very strong influence on the novel and the book, 
Uh, Jaws is at once a scientifically intelligible critter uh, and a mythological force of chaos. Uh, we've already had our debates about that movie, so I won't re revisit those here. But the soundtrack, very interestingly, about half of it is this very Stravinsky-sounding, primordial chaos, uh, very threatening music. And then the other half sounds like it's ripped off of every pirate movie you've ever heard. Uh, you know, when uh, Brody and the captain and Hooper are out on the boat and the shark isn't at the moment attacking them, uh, the score of that movie uh, sounds like they are, you know, just happy seafaring pirate's life for me sorts of guys. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's fascinating that both sides of the ocean uh, get captured in that soundtrack. And like I said, I mean, I regard it as a thoroughly postmodern soundtrack because it is pulling from these traditions of music and sort of splicing them together in unexpected ways uh, that are not uh, innovative, but they are certainly original. Cool. Well, I'm going to bring up again uh, one that I alluded to uh, in the realism episode, uh, W.C.'s Lemaire. Mm -hmm. um, when we were talking about impressionist, and uh, I, I said last time that it sounds an awful lot like the ocean. Um, can we play a little bit of that here, Michael? Yes, we can. Obviously, you couldn't listen to all of it, um, but uh, it, it's uh, it's it's absolutely gorgeous, and it's I guess kind of what you would expect from Debussy. Um, it's it's very very emotional. Um, it's it's very emotionally engaging. Uh, it 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 flows, and I, I guess imitating its subject. Uh, the interesting thing to me, and this this always I always loved it when I was lit, when it would come on uh, public radio as a kid. Uh, I, I always loved it when when they would play La Mer, um, but it always frustrated me because I could never hum it. <laughs> you know, it, you know what I mean. All right, you know I, I love I loved Beethoven, I loved Tchaikovsky, I loved you know the very heavily melodic uh, symphonic. Um, music because I could I could whistle it but I couldn't whistle La Mer um, and it took me a while to realize that the thing that frustrated me was the thing that I loved it's because it, it it's constantly flowing from one attitude to the next and he'll hold a theme for a little bit enough for you to get some kind of musical resolution but then it flows into something else and so the character of the music will will be fairly consistent over broad swaths of it, but but he never sticks around with one thing long enough. So it, so it is like that, you know, like that drifting on the ocean, or, or or just watching watching the changing play of the waves, where you're very clearly experiencing the same kind of thing in the ocean, but it is always shifting. It is always changing. Um, you can you. 
it, it's not like you know watching the the tiles on the floor or the bricks on the wall where eventually you discover the pattern and all you start to see is the pattern you don't get that in the ocean um and that, that's that's one of the things i love about la mer and neat thing nathan uh the first edition of the the print score of it mm-hmm. had a reproduction of uh hokusai's wave Oh, very good, very good. On on the cover, and they left Fuji out. Oh, you're huh. kidding me! <laughs> it's just the wave. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, well, uh, we talked about other people's stories and other people's attempts to represent the ocean. Um, and it's a it's it's a big enough uh, a big enough subject that we can just keep rehearsing authors and artists and composers and keep getting ever different views of the ocean. I think we can get far more than 36 views. Um, <laughs> what about our own? Uh, did, do you guys have any ocean stories you want to share? Well, mine, the only one I could think of or the one that's most memorable is just more evidence of what an incorrigible grump I am. Uh, <laughs> uh, first of all, I'll go ahead and preface and say that I do all of my traveling in books. Uh, I've never been off the continent of North America uh, but there was a conference I went to in California where, uh, on an evening off, my roommate and I, who I'd met, you know, on an, an email listserv, uh, for people who are going to this conference, which is fairly common for young academics, I gather. Um, but, uh, he said, you know, why don't we go out and see the Pacific ocean? And I said, oh, okay. I've never seen that before. So we went out to a little town called, uh, Oceanside, California, appropriately enough. Uh, and you know, I, you know, took my boots off and went out in the Pacific Ocean because I had never been out there, didn't know if I ever would be again. So I did go in the Pacific, but I had had an ongoing debate with my friends who were from uh, largely Jacksonville, Florida and the coast of Virginia back in college about, uh, they said that what I considered a fish dinner in Indiana was, you know, utterly disgusting and probably moral, morally reprobate. Uh, because <laughs> catfish it, or something? Well, I, you know, it was a lot of river fish and lake fish, but, you know, I ate ocean fish, too. And I said, well, guys, you know, they've invented this thing called refrigeration. I eat cheese from Wisconsin, too, and, you know, that's far away. Uh, but <laughs> I, I I happened to see a, a uh, an ocean pier fish restaurant there, and I said to my roommate, whose name I've forgotten. It's been 10 years from now, 10 years ago, so uh, if you're out there, uh, you know, American Comparative Literature Association roommate. I do apologize for for forgetting your name. Uh, but he and I went to this Ocean Pier fish restaurant, and I ordered fish. So I could say, all right, you know, now I've tasted real fish. And I discovered that, in fact, fish taste like fish. <laughs> well, it's nicely tautological. <laughs> What about you, you Michael? Un, you have an undignified palate, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> I won't dispute that. <laughs> when I was a kid, my family and I used to go to Destin, Florida. This was before it became the other tourist trap that it is today. It was just kind of a tourist trap then. Um, we stopped going one year after, uh, I think it was Tropical Storm Alberta landed in Destin, and that was the last time we ever went. It landed. We we had to leave our. We had to end our vacation early. Um. 
and I never really cared for it anyway, but when I moved to Omaha, which is, of course, many, many, many miles away from any sort of large stagnant body of water, mm-hmm. I got depressed about the idea of not being able to go to the ocean if I wanted to, because I'd never lived more than, I don't know, six, seven hours from it. Mm-hmm. So I would go down to Heartland of America Park, which is right on um, the edge of the city, and I would... Uh, it, it it smelled like fish. I guess they must have had fish in the in the lake, and uh, they had an aerator that would spray it, so it it felt almost like ocean spray. And I would mm. stand by this lake and pretend, <laughs> pretend that I was at the ocean, a place <laughs> I'd never much cared for anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I don't I don't have an explanation for it other than the one you find at the beginning of Moby Dick. <laughs> so I went down to Heartland of America Park because I spent too much time at the coffin warehouse. <laughs> The other story I have, and my wife will love my telling this one, we we went back to Destin with my parents a few years ago, and uh, we ate at our favorite restaurant, which was, uh, it's called the Back Porch, it's right on the ocean, Uh, and my wife ordered crab legs, and it took her about two hours to eat them, there were so many of them, but uh, (laughs) during this two hours, Tropical Storm Claudette began to approach the shore and so i mean all you know this wind the the wind starts kicking up and we're sitting out there and uh, i'm just waiting for her to finish so we can not die sitting on the (laughs) porch of this restaurant and then you know it came through and it was nothing i mean it was a a nothing storm crab legs cannot be hurried Uh, no well not with her She awesome. must have eaten two pounds of them. It was it was unbelievable. You, oh you, wow! She's uh, my wife is very very small. She uh, she she can uh, eat crab legs. Well, I, mo- most of my ocean stories would consist of, and I went to the beach and I sat on it and it was hot and so I read. Um, <laughs> it was hot, so I went back inside and turned the television on. Yeah, that that that. Uh, that I won't do. I feel like I'm letting the side down, as it were. Um, no, the the best uh, best ocean story. I guess this is the best ocean experience. Um, in 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 my memory, uh, my wife and I went to Polly's Island in South Carolina and stayed at a, a little hotel right on the uh, right on the beach. Uh, on uh, on the island, uh, it was Litchfield Beach in uh, Polly's Island, South Carolina. We were there in the middle of May, so it was preseason, and almost no one was there. It was that was pretty cool, and I got up uh, very very early one morning because I wanted to see the sunrise on the beach. I'd never done that before, for whatever reason. Even though I'd been a, I'd had many opportunities to. I just always slept in and figured that you know, sunrise is just sunset in reverse, right? <laughs> um, also, mostly because I would stay. Uh, most of my beach trips have been on the Gulf Coast, which faces south, and uh, this was the first time that I, that I'd actually been on the Atlantic, uh, facing east, so that the sun would be actually across the water from me. Um, so that, that was amazing. Uh, it was, it was just amazing watching the sun come up out of the ocean for that moment. I was, I was, I was an ancient Greek or, or whatever for, 
you know, for that moment, you know, the, the sun came out of the ocean for me, um, or perhaps an ancient Egyptian, maybe it had conquered the, you know, the evil snake and so had managed to rise again. Um, and I walked along this beach all by myself and I just kept encountering live things. Um, you know, crabs walking on the beach, uh, gulls picking the bits out of sea urchins. Um, I found uh, a foot, uh, basically a foot long conch shell. Hmm. I was still alive, just sort of walking along the beach, just sort of crawling along the beach. Um, it, 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 it was amazing because it was like on this morning, it was just me and the sun and the ocean and all the little living creatures. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm used, again, I'm used to the Gulf and there's not a whole lot of living things on the beat on most of the beaches I've been to in the Gulf. It's just a whole lot of white sand. Um, so this, I, I was, I was very, uh, very back to nature on that morning. I miss that warning. <laughs> well, I think uh, we're uh, rounding or rounding out the uh, rounding out the show now. And this is usually the part where we tie up our conversation with theology, but I'm not really sure what direction you take this. Uh, I mean, can we have a theology of ocean? I mean. Do do I have to adopt an ancient cosmology to make such a thing possible, Michael? I think the Romantics actually have it pretty pretty uh, pretty right to to see the ocean as a more or less living symbol of the things in the world that we cannot understand or control. Mm. Which is not to say we shouldn't explore it, not to say we shouldn't do scientific investigation of it. We should just remember that it is, I think, going to remain a mystery to us. I mean, it's the same way a lot of people look at outer space. Mm. Except uh, the ocean is closer, so I like it better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, it's kind of hard to like you know swim a little bit in the edge of space. Unless you have the spacesuit on, I guess. Well, and a lot more money than I've got. Yeah. What, what about you, Nathan? Well, I would say, uh, I mean, kind of piggybacking off of what Michael said, it, it is a reminder that. Reality, as we apprehend it, is always rhetorical. Uh, you know, the fact that I think he's right. The romantics give us one of the more compelling pictures in our moment uh, of what the ocean is, of how it connects with the rest of reality. When we study those ancient texts that talk about the ocean in very, very different terms, uh, it's a reminder that the same water was there. Uh, the same limitations of the human body were there. Uh, but because of the way that they described it, because of their language, uh, it was, in a very straightforward sense, a different place than it is for us. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I look at, for instance, the, the paintings of Edward Rooks, uh, who, you know, as far as, you know, modern sort of pop painters go, he's not bad. You know, he's the one who paints the uh, landscapes on the top half of the canvas and then the oceanscapes on the bottom with very, very distinct lined sea creatures, right? You know, usually whales are the ones that people think of when they think of his paintings. And that is a picture of reality that would have been unintelligible even a thousand years ago. And, you know, it just reminds me theologically that uh, the way that we name things, uh, whether we get those names through reason or through revelation, 
I'm going to use the Thomist rather than the Calvinist categories there. Uh, you know, it, 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 it matters how we name reality, how we paint reality, how we tell our stories about reality. So I think that it's uh, very theological to think about the ocean. So I'm glad you asked this question. Yeah. Well, I don't have uh, I don't have a lot to add to that. I I really was asking the question, um, <laughs> though. Uh, the the your uh, your contribution, Michael, uh, made me forget a story that uh, I probably should have thought of. Um, which very briefly, that old story of King Canute in the ocean, mm-hmm. um, who. Uh, what depending on how the story tell, uh, tells it, he's either so prideful that he can he walks into the ocean and commands it to stop rising, but it keeps on going, and so he learns a lesson in humility, or his advisors keep telling him that he's such a powerful guy that he wants to teach them a lesson, and so wades into the ocean and tells it to stop rising, and it doesn't, and so his counselors learn a lesson in not being flatterers. But I, either way, the idea that your king can't wait up, can wade into the ocean and, and tell it to stop. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, your king can't unless you've chosen the proper king. Ooh. Ooh. So, yeah. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Um, on that note, what's next time? All right, listeners, we're going to give you a little bit of homework this week. Uh, We're going to combine our political episode this semester with our trilogy this episode uh, because it's election year and people like to talk about politics. We're going to do it in a particularly Christian humanist mode by having a trilogy of episodes on the Federalist Papers. Uh, So next week we are going to be taking on Federalist Papers 8 through 10, uh, dealing with political factions, dealing with relationships between states and federal government. Uh, after that, uh, each of the following weeks, David and Michael will take a, a short span of these Federalist Papers. If you want to read along, uh, it should make the discussion more enriching. If not, keep listening because, uh, as I hope you've realized, uh, you can listen along and we will open up to you things that would be fun to read later. So that's next week, David. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. In the meanwhile, uh, I wish all of our listeners grand weeks. Uh, If you have any bit of ocean and literature or theology or art or music uh, that that we've left out, hey, the ocean's a big topic. There's no way we can cover it in our little, you know, hour and a half. So share it with us. Uh, Send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or make a comment on the show notes when they post at christianhumanist.org or you can leave a message on our Facebook wall. You can also like us on Facebook. Like us. Like us. Um, but in the meanwhile, yes, have a grand week. Uh, I look, We look forward to bringing our next episode to you in the next week. And on behalf of Michael Farmer, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, I will leave you with good advice from Martin Luther to let your sin be strong, but to let your faith be stronger. <laughs>